This is week eight, and we're going to talk about program design and the format for that. The objectives are choose and prepare a training site based on how the trainees will be involved. Prepare for instructions using curriculum roadmaps, lesson plans, and discussion documents, design documents. Explain how trainees' age, generational differences, and personalities will influence how the program is designed. Prepare a request for a proposal and a list of questions to evaluate training consultants. Explain the program design elements that should be included, including to ensure near and far transfer training. Develop a self-management module for a training program. Make recommendations on what managers can do before and after training to facilitate learning. Identify ways to manage knowledge and the conditions necessary for employees to share the knowledge and design applicable assignments and action plans to enhance the learning of the transfer of training. We'll be covering all these over the next uh, few uh, videos. This is the pre-training for week eight. One of the most important things that as a trainer you will do is to understand and evaluate the environment that you're going to be conducting your training in. Um, program design is the heart of effective training, efficient and effective training, because it influences all the influences. This is where you actually get down to creating lesson plans. And it refers also to the organization and coordination of training in terms of how it will be laid out and displayed and delivered. Program design process, and there's the long design process and the short. In this case, we're gonna be concentrating on the three phases, pre-training, learning event, and post-training. Pre-training is gonna include preparation, motivation, energizing employees to attend the learning, making sure in this first video we'll concentrate on the right work environment. Learning event is instructional classes, physical environment, Lesson, lesson plans, et cetera. And then post-training concentrates specifically on the assessment. So the first thing, if you have control over your environment, um, which as a trainer, you should have some input into this. You need to make sure that it's, it's comfortable and accessible. You need to make sure that it's quiet and private and free from interruptions. Having a training there, there will be opportunity where you may have to have a training session in the middle of the shop floor. You should try to avoid that or do a pre-training session in a, in a quiet environment, free from interruptions, and then go out and do the hands-on training um, in the shop environment. You need to have sufficient space for the trainees to move around and, and that they're comfortable. One of the biggest things is if they're all packed in to a, a tiny room, they're going that's going to impact and that's going to take away the learning uh, or eliminate the barriers to learning. One of the, the, the key components is everything that you can do to make the environment a clean and safe and welcoming environment is what you need to do because your trainees will be much more receptive to that. Lots of different things, and in the, the training room long description, it will cover these things, but noise, colors, 
What's the color of the room? What's the room structure, the lighting, the chairs? We're going to talk about some of this stuff. The number today, more so than anything else, electrical outlets has a major, plays a major role because everybody's bringing laptops and needs to, to get plugged in. The acoustics and then technology. So these are all components of the, the training room itself that you'll be doing. There are multiple seating arrangements and they do different types of the seating arrangements dictates different types of class style for what you're training in the training group. What you see before you is a fan-shaped seating environment. And the seat and the trainees can easily switch from a listening to a practice mode in small group type environment. They can switch between different groups easily. Whereas the lecture mode or audiovisual mode, the classroom type you see here, is much, much more geared for lectures, audio video, PowerPoint slides, where you're at the front of the front of the screen up here at the top and presenting to everybody else that's down here that's presenting. Conference style and in this is a great environment, um, depending upon what you're doing. This allows the groups to work in the teams for group discussion. So they not only um, can see one another in the group, but then they can share information. You can note, you know, body language. The downtime, downside to conference type seating is if you're presenting up at the top for part of the time frame, someone has to turn and, and turn the chair around so that they're not as uh, comfortable or may not be as comfortable um, or they're shielding someone from behind as, that's looking at that. So you need to think about that format um, as well. This is for presentation and group instruction. And I've seen this work very effectively where you're presenting at the top of the screen up here and then your group is down here. They have the ability to view everything that's presented up here on the slides and see you as a trainer but then they also can have face-to-face -face contact with everybody in the uh, class from a discussion uh, standpoint and a group inter intersection standpoint. Printing design, and we're continuing with this topic. As a manager, one of the most critical pieces that you're going to decisions you're going to make once you've decided that you need to have a training session for your employees, for whatever the reason might be that there's a gap in a technical piece, there's a gap in a motivational or a, um, a knowledge piece. Selection of the appropriate trainer is critical. It may be you, but it may not be, okay? The, the individual, the trainer needs to be a subject matter expert, should be, as well as then uh, have high good skills and program facilitation. These are key components that you need to think about when you're selecting a trainer, because it's going to be, that individual is going to be the leadership individual for your training. He or she will make sure that you've been successful in your training exercise for your employees. Preparation of material. As I said, you gotta know the content, that's critical. But after that, you need to be mentally and physically rehearsed. You need to think through, as a trainer, you need to go through and think about what you're presenting, the methods you're presenting, 
how you're talking about those specific types of materials, what the strengths of your, your, your background, how can you introduce your personality into the materials that you're, you're delivering and training on, okay? Can't emphasize it enough. You need to practice, 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 practice. That's a critical piece of going through and knowing your material and working through those. If you look at folks that do, that are outstanding trainers and watch some of their presentations on YouTube and other places, it will give you a perspective. In this class, you're going to be seeing and evaluating what your peers are doing from a training standpoint. Some of those may be great training occurrences. Some of them may not, may not be as great. Okay, but you need to be able to understand, look at those and evaluate that and say, I like this, I agree with this, this I don't prefer, so that you know what it is. You need to, everything you do, you need to design from the audience's perspective. Because they're going to ask, so what? Why do I care? Why are you telling me this? That Why is this important to me? How you should adapt, adapt your training for different generation cohorts. When we talked about generations, we talked about their learning styles between traditionalists, which are matures, baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, what they're good at and what they're not good at, what they want to what they want to have control over, what they don't want to have control over, what they're willing to give up control. And so then you look at the this demographics and you need to make sure that your training material aligns with things in each one of these. So everybody, because in reality, you'll probably, every training session you'll have, you'll have four of the five groups represented. So you need to make sure that you're covering materials in a format that they can receive that information adequately and can process it and use it. So which means that you may need to, to say it differently or rephrase it differently from one instance to another. And that may be a technique that you start to develop, but you need to think about how that's going to work, how you can adapt that for different generational cohorts. Myers-Briggs type indicator identifies 16 personality types on preferences for uh, introvert, extrovert, seeking, thinking, judging. Each, person type, each personality type has implications for work habits and interpersonal relationships. If you have an awareness of these, you're going to be able to see some of these different personality types while you're talking with the trainee group before the class. You'll be able to sense some of those as to what this individual fall, what personality type they have versus another has. And so that way then you can think a large portion of what you're doing from a training standpoint is you have to think on your feet. You have to anticipate the questions you're going to get. You have to anticipate what type of personality traits? What's the learning theory? What's the generational groups? Right there's four major areas that you need to be aware of as you work through and do your presentation and talk through the presentation, addressing these needs for each one of these types of uh, either personality types or learning theory types. Language needs to be, um, is difficult. The today we have um, so many individuals that speak uh, are in fluent and multiple languages, um, and English may not be their primary language. 
English may be their primary language, but they may only have an eighth or a ninth grade education. So you need to be considerate and think about what language, what language format you're using, the level of description that you're using, okay? And how you're going to be able to communicate with all the individuals. What that also means as a, as a technique is in some cases, you may need to slow down your presentation. To, and I'm not saying dummy it down, but just slow it down a little bit. So as you say different words, people will understand and pick up on that. That's a technique you can use depending upon what the, the background of the individuals that, that are in your class. Again, coming to class early, talking with the folks pre, uh, before class starts, getting to know them um, will give you a sense for their language capabilities, their language scale, their language skills, their names, familiarity with the names, if you can do that, okay? The degree, the level, the, the level of fluency in English versus what level of English. It, it will serve no useful purpose if you come in and start talking in terms of what a um, highly educated individual would be from a technical standpoint if nobody's able to relate to that information. So you need to be able to step that down and relate to the language and familiarity of everybody in the class. Always, always, always talk to the trainees about what's the purpose of the class. Why are we doing this? What are our learning objectives? If there are prereqs, what are they? What are you going to get out of this? I can't emphasize enough the discussion about what am I going to get out of this is critical. If there's pre-work, make sure they come to the program with the pre-work done and an understanding of the concepts. Their managers should have reinforced to the attendees, to the trainees, the expectation of why they're coming to the class, why the company is supporting them to come to this class. And so those ex expectations for learning should already be predefined. I like to, to give the big picture. Today, our agenda is we're going to do X. We're gonna spend an hour on this and have a break. We're gonna spend another 15 minutes on this and then have a break. And so we're gonna step down that format. One concept or one way of doing that, uh, here's a concept map and the long description. So you think about it, and so it starts up here, and the topic is why, for this one, why conduct pay or performance reviews, pay, development, et cetera, and then preparing for the performance review, all the different types of features or aspects of it, and then that's preparation and then actually conducting the performance review. As you can see, we've gone from 30,000 feet to 20,000 foot to 10,000 foot to down here at 100 foot in terms of preparation. You, you need to do the exact same thing as you're starting to prepare for your lesson plan in your program. You start at a high level. We're gonna talk about um, OSHA uh, safety. And then we're gonna step down all the way down to ladder, handling of ladders. Uh, and the OSHA requirements for handling of ladders or whatever that format might be. 
that's something for you to think about. I find that it's it's better if you can document this and actually put this flow into, you know, to, to just write up this flow as you're starting to prepare your materials so you know where the materials you're, provi you're providing fall into. Chunk learning, segments, okay, is critical. You do short segments, no more than 20 minutes, that you're covering a topic. Then, then you give them a break, and then you do the next one, and then you give them a break. And when I say give them a break, I don't mean necessarily that they're going out and get coffee. I'm saying that you give them time to digest the information that you've just gone through and get them to participate in it. So it may be a, a uh, learning session where you're actually conversationally, uh, you're presenting, but then they're talking back to you after the 20 minutes, because if they can tell you what they've learned, then you're going to gain an, an understanding and an appreciation for if you've been successful or not. Characteristics of micro-learning. Engage trainees by including activities to get trainees involved in games and reflection. We've talked about this in, in the technology section a little bit. Trainees practice using scenarios or other activities. You get a, if you can get the trainees involved in doing and talking, you're probably not going to get them um, in many cases, depending upon what the training is about. They're not going to do a hands-on, but get them involved in discussion and applying what they know. The key component is if, I, if you can get them where you're talking about A, and then they can relate that and say, well, this occurrence, here's what I did that relates to that. That's an excellent example of getting the students involved in the learning and doing self-reflection of that. Monitor the room for extra chairs, trash, et cetera, et cetera, from previous sessions. Why do you want to do that? So when I'm in a classroom management, but when, when I'm done with the classroom, when I'm done with the training session, I as a trainer have an obligation to clean up after myself because I don't want the next train or coming in to have to deal with that. That's not appropriate, okay? But also that tells me the degree of, of dedication of the trainees that were going through the training session themselves. And depending upon what I see is left over will tell me what they thought was important for their use and, and looking at it later or not. And then I can, re, I can design the types of materials I'm providing to them, looking at things differently based on what I hear from them at that stage. As we continue talking about training discussions and training interactions, interacting with the trainees, I can't emphasize it enough that that's the most fulfilling part of a training class. That is that when you can do that and get them engaged, it's probably one of the hardest things that you're going to go through in trying to get them to, to buy into not only your background, your expertise, your knowledge, but also relating to what they know to what the class is. It also will, uh, in part, it will get them, uh, provide you the, the ability to emphasize key points in, in working through that. Um, if you're in a large room and it says uh, move towards the trainees, I like to walk around. I think it's very important to walk around through the whole classroom 
uh, if I'm giving a lecture or if I'm doing a training session. One, I can see what the trainees are, are kind of thinking about. If they're taking notes, I can pick up on that. If they're not um, paying close attention, I can find out, I can get a sense of that. Um, but then I can also see the, the energy level. And if I'm getting, you know, if they're sitting there nodding their heads, that tells me something as opposed to if they're not. So you look for little body language signs when you're doing your training session that will help you be more effective in, in getting the materials across. Getting employees, which is what I just was talking about involvement is, is engaging employees in facility learning. If you're doing breakout rooms, that's great. That's awesome. Have the great breakout rooms predefined with the discussions they're going to talk about and give them that upfront. Be creative as you do different types of things. You can, you can have uh, where you're in, including incorporating role playing, you can use assessment. So what happens if this happens? What happens to the trainees if, you have, if you're training somebody and this happens? What do you do? How, how can you address that? And get them to start thinking about that. If, they, if, it's, if the group's a little bit uh, more mature and has students, uh, high school, middle school students of their own, have them talk about some of the things that their students go through or you go through, they go through as, as a parent trying to teach them something, okay, or help them because that's the exact same type of thing that they, they can then relate to what you're doing. Discussion groups are a hugely effective way of engaging training, but it needs to be planned. You, you can't just have it go off in one direction because you'll lose the, the enthusiasm if it's not controlled for the topics that you're needing to cover. Remember that you're there to go over a core set of materials, and that's extremely important that you get through all the materials and that the students understand and, can, and, and it can impact their KSAs. Use open-ended questions, okay? Use different type of questions, follow-up questions, discussion prompts. There's all kinds of techniques that you can use uh, when you're working with your students or your trainees to get them engaged with the, the biggest thing is be open about your conversation, but you gotta be able to think on your feet you got to be able to say, okay, adapt what I'm doing. And uh, so they're telling me this, so I need to ask this. They're telling me, A, I need to ask A minus or A plus, depending upon the direction that you're going. You're going to have sessions where you're going to have individuals who feel they know everything that you're training. They have no business being at this training session. It's a waste of their time, okay? And you have a couple different approaches. These folks can be disruptive. They can try to take over the classroom by asking questions that are way, that are inappropriate at that stage or at the stage that you're at in your presentation. Um, there are techniques you can use by, by saying, that's a great idea, that's a great comment, John or Mary but we're not quite there yet. Let's, let's get through the rest of this material and then we'll come back to your topic or your point because you've got a very valid point to make. 
So you're not giving, you're not, you're not pushing them off, but you're telling them subtly that now's not the right time to be talking about that topic right now. Okay. Um, last resort is to ask a trainee to, to leave the room. I've never done that. Um, I've heard of other trainers that have had to do that because they just could not have a trainee stay on task um, and just became so disruptive that they couldn't finish the training course. Um, but that's something you need to think about. You need to be prepared for individuals that don't want to be there, that think they're more important, that know more than you do, and how you're going to handle that. That's a key component is thinking about those types of items when you're in a training session. And how are you going to manage that? That classroom management ties in with group dynamics. Um, ask them to, to the ones that are more experienced. You can ask them, well, can you explain this? Give me an example of, of what you've gone through since you've done some of this in the past. Okay. And, and let them use their expertise or background to communicate to the novice because the, the, the folks that are novice are not as quite as experienced may look up to that individual. You don't know for sure, but you got to, you got to, and if you do that, you have to be prepared for what they're going to try to do, which will take over the topic. And so you need to think about how you're going to control that. Okay. So you just need to, to look at that format and say, okay, you're very knowledgeable. We're going to, can you answer this question for us? But then we're going to come back on task. Okay. Another way from a group dynamic standpoint, and I've done this before, is mid-morning, if, if it's a four-hour session, halfway through, we're going to change the whole room around, the seating arrangement of everybody in the room. And why do I do that? It's to give all the participants more exposure to a new group of individuals if we're doing group work. You lose a little bit of time because you're going to have to redo your icebreaker and, and redo some things, but you, you really, it's been a very effective tool for getting folks to engage with one another. This is especially true if you've got a group of individuals, maybe from the same company, but from different divisions or that don't know one another. So a curriculum refers to, let me go back. We're going to be talking now about curriculum courses, lesson plan, lesson plan design, scaffolding. And there's another video that's going to go much more in depth than this. But a high level, a curriculum report refers to a program of study designed to meet complex learning objectives. Okay. So you might have a curriculum on how to operate piece of equipment A. Within the operation of that piece of equipment, you're going to, you could have two or three courses how to do maintenance, how to um, uh, obtain the sensor data off of it, how to put pieces of metal into it and remove pieces of equipment or materials from it. Those, those could be viewed as course sub-courses of the broader curriculum. Another way of looking at it is when you were at a high level, when you um, went to college and got your bachelor's degree, you had a curriculum that you studied. And then within that, then you took, what, 30 courses, 40 courses that you got credit for, and those were the courses. 
that were specifically covered. So you can look at them in multiple ways. There's multiple depths of knowledge that you can look at. A curriculum roadmap refers to all the courses in the, in the curriculum, paths that learners can take through it, and then sequence that the courses can be completed. And this gets in, this ties into prereqs and what do I need to know to be able to do A versus what do I need to know to be able to take course B. And so depending upon what the nature of your training curriculum is for your employees will dictate how, what that sequencing is and what the order will be. But it's very defined and, and easily put together. Design documents. Here we're getting down to lesson plans. So your design documents, you have an outline of, in this case, it says the project, but an outline for what's going to be covered. You're going to step that down into lesson plans that will, and we'll, we'll have a whole session on it shortly, talking about um, in the first five minutes, we're going to do this, and this is a learning activity for the employees, versus in the next 10 minutes, we're going to do this. And this is an activity, a participation activity. And what the sequencing of events and scaffolding. So all of those types of things we'll go over in a few minutes. As we continue down this pathway on training design and course design, I want to talk about a few other things. Um, many cases, you're going to be charged with the responsibility of designing or writing up a RFP, request for proposal. That will document, it's, it's a document you give to potential vendors to do the training for you. And you tell them what, what you're looking for. In this case, we're talking training, but you can do it in other types of things. What kind of references are needed? How many employees are they going to be training in your environment? How many employees have they, what their background is for training? What the funding for the project is, which is just, um, fairly straightforward, but that's an internal decision and not necessarily when you're going external, do you give them that? What the process is to make sure that they've achieved those goals and objectives and the date the project should start or the date that the training should start and end. Um, so they know the time parameters. So request for proposals are RFPs are a, a fairly common document. It could also be requests for training so RFT is another example of what you might hear. One key consideration is, is the training on, is on near or far. So near training or near transfer refers to learning capabilities exactly how they taught in the training. Whereas far transfer refers to that it's not exactly to what they were, uh, the environment is not exactly what they had in training. So an example near training would be if we were training on a uh, ERP system and you had computers in front of you, that, that environment is going to be exactly what it's going to be when they go to apply their, what they've learned. Whereas the uh, FAR training, an example would be uh, working on a piece of equipment um, and you may be using video, augmented reality, for doing the training, but then when they actually go and start using that piece of equipment, the environment is different. Promoting near training or near transfer, I keep calling training, so 
it, near training promotes standardized processes. It explains you provide examples for any differences between training and work task. So it's very much a step A, step B, step C, bing, 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 right down the row. And you explain why the procedure should be informed, performed exactly in that way. There's no deviation. The deviation could cause production problems. It could cause equipment breakage, and it could be a safety issue. So there can be a near training, near transfer, the types of things you're training on, there is no deviation. Whereas in FAR training, you can have some deviation in terms of uh, self-reflection and, and moving forward. You're focusing on the general principles that apply, but not necessarily a specific step-by-step -step environment. So in this section, we're gonna talk about some issues with management support. Um, as you go through and both management and self-management. So one of the things is you need to prepare the trainees for obstacles that they're gonna run into. There's gonna, there's gonna be situations where there's relapse, they're not gonna remember. The uh, transfer and performance goals may not be clearly defined when you go and specifically get in the workspace. There are different obstacles that you may not have covered. You should, ideally, you were going to cover as many as possible, but you may not. You may have uh, not been aware of other obstacles that they were going to need to have a, the ability to deal with. Um, and then there's self-administered rewards for successful transfer, which you don't know if those apply or not to the individuals that you're working with. The you will have ongoing issues, questions, conflicts, whatever you want to call that down the road with manager support from low to high. You're going to have individuals, you're going to have managers who are going to be 100% acceptive and encouraging the trainees to go through these training courses. And, and these managers are going to want to participate. They're going to reinforce what the trainees are going through because they think it's very valuable for them and they're gonna get something out of it. They're going to allow practice time, the trainees to practice, and then they will also serve as a trainer themselves. You will also have managers that are gonna be on the opposite spectrum who won't necessarily uh, be as receptive to the training. I, I need them on the shop floor now. I can't afford to have them go off and get trained on this. Yes, it's going to help them in the long run, but it's not going to help what we're doing today. So you need, just need to be aware of the levels of management support that you're going to have to be facing or deal, dealing with. You're going to have, also, you're going to have situations where the individual, the trainee's peers may um, give them some pushback. Why do you get to go and I don't get to? Um, you may have the situation where the trainees are going to try to train their peers. And that may be positive and negative. I would, I would suggest to you that you need to talk with the trainees about these types of things and what can they do with the knowledge that they're gaining, not only the knowledge on the specific item you're training, but also the interpersonal type things that they picked up during the training session that will help them work forward in that regard.
as we move forward, the trainees, but I, I want to say this, it's extremely important in my mind for the trainees to have the opportunity to demonstrate what they've learned to the other individuals in their work environment, to give them the capabilities. One of the, one of the, the examples of one of the things that, that I used to do is that if you went to a training course, when you come back, you have to train, you have an obligation to train everybody else on what you've learned. So that way then A, we can talk, we can have a common lexicon level, knowledge level of, of discussion about what you've learned. We can see how that applies to what everybody's doing. And then also then re, that can be reinforced where you become the, the resident knowledgeable person, but you're also translating that to other individuals on the shop floor where they can get something out of that training. It extends your training dollars from a management standpoint, and you need to be aware of that. Rather than sending five people, you send one, and one comes back and trains the other people on the shop floor. So there's lots of different opportunities that, and ways you can ask the trainees to do things that will help your whole environment. Knowledge management, and this ties into what we were just talking about um, a little bit in terms of sharing the knowledge. Um, if you have the ability to start, especially now, and so why am I saying why, why is knowledge management now? What are most companies faced with right today? They have employees that are getting ready to retire, baby boomers that are getting ready to retire. And there's a huge amount of implied knowledge that these individuals have. So what you need to think about and what this subsection that we're talking about now is how can we gather that information? How can we enhance that and kind of put it into a repository? It'd be nice to, to a brain drain and have everybody in a database that they could share that information, but you can't do that. But you need to think about what kinds of, of ways or formats can you start gathering data from the individuals that know, and you need to talk with them up front so that they know that you're not doing this uh, to get rid of them, to, to move them out, but to try to build that knowledge base, that overall repository of information, whether it's a process structure, trying to create a sharing environment and the use of knowledge and having that knowledge available for everybody is critical as we all look to move forward. The, uh, there are a variety of management systems. You can use emails, uh, published directories of expertise. I've seen companies do a lot of different things in that regard of here's who knows these kinds of things, and here's who's a resource for this type of information. Um, I've had, I've seen companies that they will have the more senior, more experienced, not senior, more experienced individuals start just recording um, into a blog or a tape of how to go about doing certain types of things and what to look for as, they, as they're going through and looking at different types of, ex, of uh, projects or errors or ways to fix different things so that that information is, is recorded. I've seen other companies that will use video. So as, the, as the, the more expert maintenance individual is fixing something, 
he wears a video on on his shirt or on his helmet, and that records that so that other way otherwise folks will down the road will have the ability to look at that and uh, apply that information. It's tough to require employees to give presentations. A lot of employees are are more than willing to do that. A lot of them are uncomfortable in giving presentations, even if it's to their peers. So you need to think about it of different ways that you can capture that, that knowledge from them. And, and whether it's, like I said, through a video offline or a blog tapes, just you, you need to be creative on how to go about doing that process. Um, you may have your OEM that gives you a video on how to operate a piece of equipment and then um, the individuals on the shop floor that are really using that equipment, just take that and start writing in notes on different types of things. Well, make sure you check this and look at this, those types of things. At a, at a much higher level of creating a knowledge management strategy for your whole department or company, you can create communities of practice. You can create libraries of information that's readily available besides just the singular employee, but that has all the manuals in it and everything that's readily available. So those are other ways of knowledge management. A key component for a knowledge management system, whether it's, it's in an individual piece of equipment from one employee versus um, the, the entire department is that IT has got to be part of it. You've got to have a resource or a way of garnering that information and gathering that. Technology has got to be easy to use and not cumbersome. That's a critical component of it. And there, there's got to be trust that the employees are willing to share their information. They need to realize that if I'm sharing, they're going to view this as, as their asset. That's their knowledge. Okay. And if they share it, will they lose something by sharing it? So you need to make sure that that doesn't occur and create a, a sharing environment for them to go through. So we've gone through a lot of different things um, on lesson plans and knowledge sharing and, and curriculum. There'll be a couple other videos more specifically on how scaffolding and doing lesson plans that will be out there for you. Mm -hmm.